Welcome, everybody, to another Economics Happy Hour. My name is Matt Rosu. And I'm Jadrian Wooten. And pleased to have you here. Uh, Jadrian, how is January going? Uh, January is going well. We're recording this on January 5th, so we're five days uh, into the new year. Uh, I set up a, a goal of reading 52 books a year, so it's week one. I have not finished any books, so uh-oh, I'll get uh-oh. there, but I have not finished any of them yet. How's dry you- January going? Dry January is going well, and so for the drink, I, I figured I'd be about as exotic as I could be. I'm going to do a virgin uh, Moscow Mule. So I have the okay. ice. I could even do this, I, and I even have the lime juice, but no vodka. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's going well. Um, I haven't checked the scale to see if I've lost weight yet, but I've, um, you know, I even went to a brew, a really cool brewery in Pittsburgh called the Church, and okay. The beer there looked good, admittedly, right? <laughs> but I have um, been to this brewery and I can confirm the beer is good. But it was not a hundred dollars good. Um, yeah. I will say that. So, so I am pouring myself a uh, Virgin Moscow Mule. And what do you have for your drink this afternoon? I, uh, you know, I'm going to try to make sure. So, one of my goals with this podcast is I want to make sure that I have a different beer every single time we meet. And a little part of me, I really want to try to have a different brewery. So, I think at least in the beginning. I'm going to try to have a different brewery and at some point I think we're going to we're going to overlap. So I reached deep into the back of my fridge to get this one. Uh mostly cuz I like I have multiple this is more than anybody needs to know. I have multiple fridges in the house that all contain uh beer. Uh so I have <laughs> I've got the spare bedroom beer fridge. Uh that's the quick access beer fridge. I've got the garage beer fridge, very traditional bulk beer fridge. Uh, and then every now and then a beer makes its way into the main fridge. Uh, that's usually by accident. This is a main a main fridge beer. It is a Devil's Backbone Vienna Lager. So I've I had just... Devil's Backbone before. Uh, I don't know that I may or may not have had the Vienna Lager, uh, but so I know it Devil's says, Backbone is good. Yeah, mild, toasted, and caramel notes. If I can find it, Lexington, Virginia is where we're we're coming from today. And that was not on purpose. That was not a Virginia choice. I think I probably just. Ooh, I have uh, had the Vienna Lager, the beauty of Untapped. Hey, I okay. rated this. I rated this as a four. Have I had it? <laughs> what? Have I had it? Uh, you. Let's see. My friend Steve has had it. You have had it. Did I oh, like boy. it? <laughs> if if I had given it this rating, I would say no. You didn't like it. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> what I give it. 2.5. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> That's why it was in the back of the fridge. That's why it was hiding in the back of the fridge. So, all right. So, yeah, it my... tastes better this time. So, cheers to exactly. Cheers. Let me I'll pull it up. Um, you know, this is uh, my, uh, my rating system for beers has changed tremendously. I think whenever I first started, I was really picky. Um, and then I kind of got into like a nice little sweet spot where I say, uh, above a three is drinkable. If it's below a three, it's it's usually not drinkable, so that makes me very nervous for a 2.5. Um, 3.5 is like a solid everyday beer. A four is like a is a pretty good beer. Uh, so anytime I see ratings where like the average is like a 4.2, I'm like, yes, that's going to be so good. That's got to be great. That's I think that, and I think we talked about this last time is if you can get people as with as much variety as beer drinkers have in their preferences that the majority of them are giving it above a four. That's a good sign to me. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, we talked I rem- a little bit last time. 
with IPAs, I think generally they're pretty highly rated. So mine, 3.75 and 4, I'm a very bell curve on mine. And yeah. those are the height of the bell curve, 3.75 and 4. I don't know why I gave it a 2.5. I like First drink, lots of caramel notes. It definitely has that. I think this is pretty good. That's good. I, I gave it a four when I tried it, whenever I tried it. So that, old me gotta, did not like it. Maybe you got us, maybe you had eat, you had something to eat that didn't match with it or whatever. I've, I've grown up a little bit. Maybe that's what uh, it is, right? Um, and I got to say, I, I think this is the first time I've ever had a virgin Moscow mule. That is can not, you tell the difference? I don't know that I can. And now, admittedly, if you put two right side by side, I probably could tell the yes. difference. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go back in my untapped. I'm going to look at this. But it's pretty delicious. Had... Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I've grown up, Matt. I had this in 2014. Oh, okay. Um, at a location called The Hamilton, a bar in D.C. So I'm going to blame it on D.C. I think that's probably why I didn't like it. I think I've been to The Hamilton. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, um, that's my favorite Washington. thing. I love that about untapped is I could be like, I had this beer eight years ago yeah. in Washington, D.C., we uh, well, it's it's always fun to blame stuff on on Washington. There's always there's always <laughs> they they don't get enough blame as as in general from everybody, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you just made that comment about I'm gonna I'm gonna share a, a personal uh, story about a virgin drink that uh, still cracks me up to this day. So as soon as you said you couldn't taste the difference between that, or that it didn't wasn't noticeable. Yeah. Um, whenever it's probably eight years ago, um, I went to Jamaica for a friend's wedding and I stayed in an all-inclusive resort okay. and I pumped right like right out of grad school like this yep. is amazing um and I spent most of my free time on the beach drinking strawberry daiquiris because I was like oh, I'm not I'm not gonna drink too much but like I'd like to enjoy myself and I kept going to the little bar and going strawberry daiquiri please and I'd go back read some strawberry daiquiri please and I'd go back and read some and I kept going back and forth and I was like man this all-inclusive resort they don't put any alcohol in these strawberry daiquiris and like I was just, I had like three or four of them. I'm like, there's nothing in here. And I went to the bartender and I was like, hey, can you actually add an extra shot of, of rum to that? And he goes, what do you mean an extra shot? There's no alcohol in this. And I was like, I thought, it, I thought daiquiris were alcoholic. He goes, no, a strawberry daiquiri is a virgin drink. He goes, you're thinking of a rum daiquiri. He's like, you got to tell me you want a strawberry daiquiri with rum and I'll, I'll put it oh, in there for come you. On. A strawberry daiquiri by definition has rum in it. That's what I thought. But at this resort, because yeah. right, there's kids and stuff like that. Okay, the, that's fair. The default is there's no alcohol in it so that the kids can drink it too. I was like five deep by the time I realized it. <laughs> and then I didn't want another one because I'd already consumed so much sugar. So much of the sugar. That's funny. That's funny. Uh, well, yeah, so it's. That was dry, dry Jamaica, I guess. So. Uh, well, for like an hour. An hour. <laughs> I mean, it didn't last long. Yeah. So those of you who have not listened before, I'm going to, I'm going to sell, not sell out Matt. I'm going to shout out Matt. Matt is doing dry January. Uh, so we first talked about this in episode two, but that was like way back in December. Uh, we recorded episode three. So if you've listened to the most recent ones, even though the timing's a little off, uh, Matt was not doing dry January in episode three. Correct. Today, Matt is five days into dry January. Five days. How in. do you feel so far? I feel no different at all okay. now, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? I think in some ways, I'm not a heavy drinker, so I, I don't know that it would be this wild change in life. Mm -hmm. um, but 
it's and I haven't even gone to the scale. I did go to the scale right as it started, so I know okay. um, know where I was before. I would, but but I don't really feel any different, which in some ways I think is good. Uh, I saw a tweet um, by a lawyer who is saying I'm I'm doing dry January. My um, if if you're a lawyer and reading this, realize that lawyers have alcohol problems at twice the rate of the general population it's a good reset maybe you should do it and i was like that's kind of a good thought um you know it's so it's kind of a it's kind of in some ways it's been reassuring that five Mm -hmm. days in i'm like i'm not like at night craving like oh my gosh i need a beer or anything yeah it's just yeah it's normal um which is good um and I, at some point I'll figure out, okay, am I, am I losing weight on, on this thing? Or I haven't, I didn't do a blood pressure check before that sometimes doctors say to do that or yeah. any of the other things, but, um, but no, January is off to, it's off to a good start. Fantastic. That's good to hear. Yeah. And you are off to, um, you're going to be on a, on a boat pretty soon. For a little bit. Yeah. For I, a little bit. Be, is I there a drink a package bit. on the boat? I did not do the drink package. I'm going to try to, I'm, I am not doing dry January clearly since I just poured a beer. Um, but I'm going to try to cut back significantly. Um, I, you know, I haven't, you know, I've spent the past couple of days thinking about this of how I want to do it. And I'm not hundred percent sure. I, I need to probably cut out some sodas for a while. I realized like kind of in the second half of December, I was like, I'm drinking like two or three of these a day and I'm not drinking diet sodas. I'm drinking yeah. just straight yeah. Coke. <laughs> like, uh, large sodas from McDonald's. Like I was like, I need to stop. Um, oh, that that two or two or three cokes a day is is like is a meal. Yeah, I mean, so that's... I'm I'm gonna try to cut back. I, I haven't, yeah. you know, I'm not abstaining. Maybe I'll maybe I'll abstain in February, right? Since I've already missed some of January. I'm I'm looking over here at the coke that I have laying on my desk. I so, I switched to diet many years ago because of calorie yeah. reasons, but um, that's one step. But I still laugh at your two to three a day because. I have two to three by seven thirty in the morning. So, <laughs> I you know if I could, I could do it. It wouldn't bother me. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the self control is two to three a day. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've, I've yeah. been thinking about what do I need to do and change, and I think you know drinking some more water is probably a good idea. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. So today we wanted to talk a little bit about minimum wage, both um, kind of thoughts on it, how we teach it, and then there's a couple different papers. Um, that we wanted to to talk about it. So, Jader, and I know you and I both like microeconomics quite a bit mm-hmm. more, and this is commonly taught in micro. How do you approach? How much time, I guess, do you spend on um, minimum wage price controls in your class? Uh, so, for minimum wage, very very little. Um, I don't have a good reason why. I think a lot of it's just like I teach so many topics and principles that I tend to go with the like. Uh, the fire hose approach of like, look at all this economics. Sure. Uh, so minimum wage maybe gets like a, a little 10 minute discussion among the price controls, which is among the government intervention. Uh, so at a principles level, not much. Okay. I, I think I would do a little bit more than that, but there is so much. It's, I don't know if it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes or something, but it's certainly not a week or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, so this is um, one of those interesting... So I'll say this is interesting on two fronts. Maybe we can kind of... We can dabble a little bit on both sides. Um, so one, the minimum wage stuff is really interesting just because recently, right, we're filming this in January and a lot of states just kicked in new higher minimum wages. So Virginia's one of them. Um, they kicked up from $11 to $12. Uh, but a, kind of across the country, we've seen a bunch of this happening. 
So yeah, I think, I, I think it's 30 timely. plus municipalities yeah. or states just increased. So Yeah. Um, but then the second one kind of, this is, as I said, the I use the fire hose approach. There's a lot of people who argue that we're probably teaching too much stuff in economics and that we should kind of squeeze it down and like find some key things to talk about and go deeper into those key things. And, you know, when I think about doing that, minimum wage is actually always one of those examples of where I think like, if I were to cut out a lot of stuff and really go deep into something like spend an entire day on a topic, I think minimum wage would be one of those topics. So for those, every, for those who, I guess, who are living under a rock, uh, defining, so a minimum wage is a government mandated minimum that employers can pay employees and different States and countries would have different rules on this. Um, you know, servers at restaurants can sometimes be exempt or have a much lower minimum wage, but then there's tips. Uh, people at different ages could perhaps have a different minimum wage. Um, I don't know if it's still the case that farms could have a different minimum wage at times. For families, um, there's actually, a, there's a kid's minimum wage. Uh, so if you're like a 15 year old worker, you can get paid you know, a little bit less. You could be paid a little, um, yeah. If you have some and, sort of mental, physical limitation, uh, there's a sub minimum wage for that. And where it comes into play, so in, you know, in the, I think there's, there's the positive analysis and then there's the normative analysis, uh, positive analysis, what is happening or what does theory say should happen? Um, and what does research say happens? Normative analysis is what should it be? And, um, in minimum wage is one where there's very much to me, a, like, the positive, but then you take the positive analysis and everybody will have their different normative views on that. So positive analysis, I don't know, you go through with it, but in general demand and supply, you come up with an equilibrium. There will be some quantity in the market and some price in the market. And for workers, of course, there's some wage and some number of people working. And it's weird to say in the market because, of course, there's hundreds of different sub-market, sub-labor markets. So minimum wage was most likely going to apply when it's lower skilled. And I say lower skilled, but like entry level, um, you know, in the term lower skilled, it sounds derogatory. I'd love to have a different term for that. But you know, my actually, default- I think a lot of people have switched it to just low wage industries. Just low wage industries. Okay, yeah. low wage. Um, so low wage jobs where there's... an there will be some equilibrium quantity and price. So if the minimum wage is not binding and in Pennsylvania, I could argue, I don't think it's binding anymore. Um, very much at least it's seven twenty-five an hour here. And I'm in rural Pennsylvania where the cost of living is pretty low. And maybe you see it at some places that hire 15 year olds, but most places are at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, $15 mm-hmm. an hour. So the minimum wage here isn't binding other, if it's not binding, basically, theory says, okay, there's nothing, right? You, um, There's no change. There's an equilibrium price, There's an e- which is the wage. There's an equilibrium number of people working. And if the minimum wage is lower, it won't affect it. If the minimum wage is binding, so if the minimum wage is higher than the equilibrium, what theory predicts is the quantity demanded will exceed, or I'm sorry, the quantity of quantity supplied will exceed the quantity demanded. So the number of people willing to work will go up because the wage is higher. The number of firms willing to hire at that wage will drop because the wage is higher. And you would end up seeing a surplus of workers in the market. And where that would manifest itself in statistics is you should see a higher unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's uh, my quick two-minute positive analysis on that. What anything on the? I'd put one yeah. asterisk on it. Right, the, everything everything was spot on. You, I think you summarized it exactly how it's taught. Um, but the only thing is that that is the analysis for a competitive labor market. So, right, general supply and demand curves, lots of workers, lots of firms, uh, perfect information, uh, generally homogenous workers, like easily interchangeable um, workers. So competitive labor markets, we would expect to see those. And actually, it's a little, you actually kind of said it in the application, except not like kind of kind of backwards, right? So smaller towns are probably not very competitive. Not a lot of places you can work, um, not a lot of workers available. Um, so it, it's a little bit... It's a thin um, market. It's a thinner market. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Stepping in because we had a little technical glitch and lost 30 seconds of our video and audio. But Jadrian was finishing his point that what I was saying holds... But for a competitive market, and that if you're in a thin market or a market where there's only one buyer of labor, things could be a little bit different. I then jumped in to talk about how a lot of the minimum wage discussion differs between positive and normative analysis. Now, positive analysis, that's the analysis of fact, the analysis of what is happening. The if you do X, Y will occur, whereas normative is a value judgment analysis and we'll resume with my thoughts on value judgments in our original conversation right now. And then, so then there's the normative of what everybody thinks. And then there's a whole bunch of research that drives on the normative. Normative views on this, I'm happy to start, or if you wanted to start on um, like what well, your thoughts are on the minimum wage. Yeah, so you know, so I said that there was an asterisk, right? So let me, let me give the non-competitive story of how a minimum wage impacts non-competitive markets. Uh, so I don't cover minimum wage very much in my principles course, um, but I did teach labor economics for like eight years. And that section got like an entire week about the about minimum wages and impacts and things like that. So like that's where I get a lot of the background. So the big thing uh, in non-competitive labor markets, and this is always this has always been my frustration. People, um, yeah, I'm probably guilty of it too. Um, when we think about non-competitive labor markets, we typically think of companies that are really powerful. So like there's only one place you can go work. So like the old stories uh, are like the coal towns, the old sure. coal towns of West Virginia and, and Pittsburgh. You can only work for one company and there's nobody else, no other place to work. Um, and there's still some kind of these, these are known as monopsonies. So I should say like, if there's yeah. only one place you can work or one place hiring you, that's a monopsony. Uh, if there's only a couple places you can work, so say two or three restaurants, that would be a monopsonistic. So it's like one of my favorite words in economics. Um, but we always tend to think about it as like, it's these bad companies that are pushing wages down and not paying people. Um, and one of the things that I always try to remind my students is that if there's only two or three places you can work in town, yeah, there's a there's few places you can work, but you could move and go work somewhere else. And the problem is people don't move. And so I always try to remind my students that like these monopsonistic industries where there's not a lot of great jobs, um, part of that issue is that people aren't people also aren't leaving those towns. Um, and so it's it's actually two yeah. sides. Like the reason they have so much power is because you're not leaving. Yeah. Um, and they'll only have power if there's an outsized population relative to the number of firms. They right. could easily 
you know, if there's a one stoplight town, they should, in theory, have fewer people who are eligible for those jobs. Yep. And the power could actually go the opposite way, where it the could. workers yeah. Has, yeah. have yeah. a little bit more power. Um, yes. So in these particular industries, if you have a situation where there's only one place you can work or a few places you could work, um, it's possible that they're pushing wages below the competitive level. Kind of, it, It's still a market. It's still a market outcome. But that market's outcome is less than a competitive outcome. Correct. Um, and I can give you another example that actually is in the news recently that's, uh, I think, really interesting. In minimum wages in those examples, there is a very, so this is a theory positive analysis story. There's a very thin narrow of wages. Uh, so below the competitive, but above that kind of power wage, if the minimum wage is there, you could actually increase employment and increase uh, wages. But as Correct. soon as you kick above the competitive, it reverts back to the story that you back just down. Yeah, so yep. it's like a, a super narrow sliver of wages. Yep. Uh, but it's it's always one of those, like, it's theoretically possible. So I don't like to leave that out. Um, but I'll give you a really good example. So, you know, I said coal towns is the monopsony one. This is actually something that just came out last month, um, or at least a proposal to pay teachers higher wages and set a minimum wage for teachers in the United States. So kind of a national teacher's minimum wage. Aside from this, this is actually, I think that's super interesting, mostly because we always talk about minimum wages for low wage workers. And this is minimum wage for like people making $60,000. Like these are not like what yeah. we would normally think about as minimum wages, but it's a really cool example. I think actually of some of that monopsonistic power that we don't think about. Um, so like coal towns are really kind of an easy example, but if you live in a town and you want to be a teacher, there are only so many schools, right? There's, there might be only one school district you can work at. There might be a private school that you can work at. And so there's some monopsonistic characteristics in the teaching market, but like we would never think about a, a minimum wage yeah. in, a, in, a, in a job I, uh, that pays above the median. Given there, I mean, it's, it's pretty, you'd have to be pretty rural and isolated and spread out to not be within a 40 minute drive of a dozen, maybe not a dozen districts, but I'm thinking you're within a 40 minute mm -hmm. drive where I'm sitting, which is rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say there's monopsony power on that. I, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we so, should but talk about the teacher proposal on a different yeah. day because we'll get way sidetracked. Uh, well, so but I, here's where it gets interesting. So a lot of that, so the perfect competition model assumes that there's no cost to moving. So that's part of that other monopsony part, right? Like I could go work in the yeah. neighboring school district, but it, now it costs more money to go move to that that scenario. So there's like some there's like little bitty parts that we always kind of ignore in the competitive market story. Yeah, I don't think you need to move as a teacher, though. I mean, like there's mm -hmm. so many districts so close by. Uh, yeah, it could be there, but um, no, I think the teaching one. That's a. I think that's almost a separate episode. We could we, maybe it's we should just, do a bonus episode when we decide to yeah, do a it's paid so, uh, substack. It's so interesting because like you don't. These are not nor. That's not a normal job to think like. Yeah. They need support. I think this, this is going to get into the normative side of things that we're about to move into. Um, we don't typically think about a job that already has a median pay of like $60,000. That's a, that's above the median income in the United States. Like why, why are we looking at that particular occupation? Uh, and then again, it goes to the normative side. So normative economics, I can, I'll, I'll help us transition into that. What should we do? Yeah. Is what should be done. And this is where I think economics gets super interesting 
um, because it asks people to essentially do cost-benefit analysis of the positive analysis of what you're kind of willing to give up for things that you think are worth it. Yeah. So, so on the minimum wage, normative-wise, um, is there a perfect minimum wage in your mind? I have one in my mind. So. I know. I know yours. I know, you know yours already. Um, I, do, I don't think any, it's not going to surprise anybody that you asked me first. Uh, I'm happy to go first if you want. So No, you know, I think my problem, my problem really is that, I think my problem is more with how minimum wages are administered, not necessarily the price that is picked. Um, mostly because I think when we think about minimum wages, you kind of you you talked about it in in the beginning when you first introduced it. It's right. It's a it's a price that is applied to some sort of jurisdiction. So if it's a state minimum wage, it's applied across the state. If it's a city or a county, it's across the city and county. But my problem with the way the minimum wage is applied is that it really depends on where you live. Um, and so setting a minimum wage of one place versus another doesn't account for cost of living and things like that. So I I do support a minimum wage. I would like to see those be more jurisdictionally based. Um, I don't like the idea of a national minimum wage. I don't like the idea of a federal, uh, a state minimum wage. I really sort of think it should be kind of a a county's choice if they want to do it. Uh, And if they don't want to do it, then, then maybe my answer is they don't have one and it reverts down to zero. So I I'm in favor of like lots of wages. Okay. Yeah, and I, I if there's to be minimum wages, I definitely say yours more than mine, which uh, more than what we have. Uh, but my yeah, my minimum wage, I think, is the general rule. They're counterproductive. I would rather see it be zero, and I think that they've caused a lot of damage. So here's the thing, society. though: if you just said Pennsylvania, almost every place pays above it, then a minimum wage of seven twenty-five is ineffective. Are you we saying basically, just shoot it down to zero or just like leave it and never change it again? Right now, well, at the moment, we're kind of, um, it's basically the same for most people, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, maybe there's a small subset that couldn't get, uh, doesn't, basically doesn't add the value to a firm of $7.25 an hour and can't get hired at $7.25 an hour, but that's a pretty small subset at the mm-hmm. moment. And so, um the best second best minimum wage to one that's zero is one that's so low that it doesn't matter. And because in many ways, right, there's no um there's no analysis, but there's no factoring on that. But I, I just see I see the harm that it causes to be pretty incredible. Well, one, it's predominantly teenage. I mean, teenagers, you know, the, I think if you look at a study, somebody will say, no, more it's not just teenagers who are on there. There's this big percentage. Well, teenagers is mm-hmm. a tiny percentage of the overall population, right? 16 to 19 year olds, it's 16, 17, 18, 19, it's four working years. And they it's it's the dominant portion of minimum wage workers, at least when they were a little bit lower. I don't know what how it flips when it's 15, 16, 17, 18 an hour. Um and Entry level work for these individuals is so stunningly important for life, mm-hmm. like in terms of the life skills gained and putting in a high minimum wage where you're preventing individuals from doing this to me is setting them off for a course of, I mean, it's, it's damaging future life prospects enormously. Um, 
yeah, I could go on. I have gone on. I actually spoke at the Pennsylvania Capitol on this before. So I, I've, I've rattled on on minimum wage for a long time. Um, so, okay. So then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to push you a little bit then. Please so do. then would Please you do. support different minimum wages based on ages? Because I actually think that's been proposed semi-recently, I think. Well, I that think they, that's a good second like, best. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would think, um, you know, there's what I think, and then there's what would have, what would be at all feasible. Do I think the minimum wage is going away? Well, sadly, no. Um, do I think you could abolish the minimum wage for teenagers or 16 to 17 year olds, 18 and nine? I think there, there'd be some feasibility in that. I mean, I think there might be some, I think that, you know, there could be a conversation starter on that. Um, so I would be more in favor, I'd absolutely compared to the current, where we are currently, I think there's, um, there's a fair amount of, uh, there'd be some good for that. So I, my minimum wage qualms, um, come from, I, it's obvious it's going to be personal anecdote experience because like I worked minimum wage jobs. I worked, uh, me too. I, yep. I worked at Quiznos, I think was my first job. Okay. Um, then I moved over to Dairy Queen. Uh, I remember asking for a 25 cent raise. I said, I, you know, I think I'm more valuable. I'm a manager. Uh, I'd like to have a 25 cent hour raise. And they said, no. And I was like, okay, I quit then. Like, and I just, I look back on it and I'm like, I was only working like 20 hours a week. So I looked at it on two ways, right? Like I looked at it as I'm asking for like four bucks a week. Like you, yeah. you can't, you can't give me a blizzard. Um, yeah, for, yeah. I guess I'm not worth the 25 cents. Um, but it, yeah, it does. It does say what they think of you though. There's some about, there's a lot of value to, you know, it, it was a more competitive market. They, they knew they had a, a stack of applications and that somebody else would come in and work for 25 cent, le- 25 cents less. And like, like I made a blizzard. There's not that much skill to it. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're on a grill, you're frying. Um, my, my marginal productivity, the people weren't, people weren't going to that dairy queen because of me. Um, but then I got a job at a restaurant and I realized how much you can make in tips. That was a much better, much better deal. Um, but I think, especially when it comes to minimum wages, I think where I have my most qualms, I don't have a qualm with 725. I don't have a qualm with $10 an hour. Don't love 15, but like it's getting into that weird. That's a, it's getting into a weird spot where I just don't know enough about it. Where I really struggle on like a normative side of things with minimum wages is, is the sub minimum wage um, of like paying waiters 235 or paying somebody with um, a physical limitation or mental limitation less than the minimum wage, but it's not so much that, that they can be paid that, but that they're paid that relative to someone else. Um, and like where it gets kind of weird is like the counter argument is always, well, if they weren't paid that, if they were paid the same, the company might not hire them. And that's where it gets into like the really weird ethical side of things of like, is it okay to pay somebody less as a trade-off for them not getting hired at all? I think like, all the sub-minimum wages, all the rules and laws and regulations, I don't think are worth the like outcomes of paying those people less. I think like 
a blanket single wage, 725, 10, like whether it matters or not, is so much easier to administer and monitor and regulate. Like we're always going to have that regulation. All of the stuff around sub-minimum wages just feels like excessive regulation, regulatory burden that like doesn't benefit the outcome of it. Um, so like I lived in Washington, they did not have a, a server's minimum wage. They were paid the regular minimum wage with everybody else. Um, you could still tip if you wanted to, uh, people still did. It didn't change anything mostly because like, it's not that much more money. Um, the prices of food were a little bit higher. Most restaurants were in the, I was on the border between Washington and Idaho. So most of the restaurants were in Idaho. Most of the fast food was in Washington. Um, but like, hmm. I, I would say the tipped minimum wage is where it gets weird. Um, right. Cause like, especially now that we're tipping everyone, uh, it's how does one place get tips and one place doesn't, I never liked the idea that like how much my server makes, how much I tip at a Mexican food restaurant is different than how much I tip at a steakhouse. Um, when realistically they're doing the same job, um, you know, it's me, right. I'm the one tipping them differently. I could change that. I, that's where I was. I always got really weird about sub minimum wages. Yeah, I, I, I haven't thought about the sub minimum wages as much. At the surface, I guess I'd rather have those options to do less. The whole idea on yeah. tipping might be a separate episode we should talk about. There's, there's, there's a lot on tipping. So that uh, would but, be a wage that is so low, it's essentially zero. Like Yeah, yeah, basically 225. Uh, it's a, two, I thought it was two something two, yeah, an hour, just, right? Yeah. I don't know. It's two bucks an hour. It's yeah. nothing. Like Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so no, that's uh but that's so that's interesting. So so there's yeah, so that's our normative and then that's somewhat guided. You know, like I know my normative views are guided from mm -hmm. kind of the various research strands that I've seen over the years. And um, we we have a couple articles we wanted to talk about today. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them um, just came out. Uh, I think it was accepted for publication towards the end of 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a working paper version. I'm not certain it's the same title, but how morality and efficiency shape public support for minimum wages. And you just reviewed this over the past um, past couple of days. I think twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. But really looks at um, surveys, uh, choice experiments among the public to see when people would be more or less likely to support a minimum wage. So we can put a link to that in the description. Um, I was, um, you know, I, I find it kind of interesting on this one, but you know, the, in there it goes, uh, the average respondents willing to tolerate a large increase in unemployment before, before voting against a minimum wage system, mm -hmm. which I was surprised by how much I like the amount was surprising. So I pulled it up real quick. That way we can give it a, a formal shout out. So uh, this was work by Connor Lennon, Keith Teltzer, Jose Fernandez, and Stephen Goman. Uh, it's called How Morality and Efficiency Shape Public Support for Minimum Wages. And it was just published January 2023 is the official uh, yeah. official date. It was in the Jibo, journal, right? Jibo, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization. Yeah, it's a very good journal. So congrats. Mm -hmm. Um to to those individuals i know i've met jose connor keith and steven if i've met you and i'm forgetting i apologize uh, it's been a few years since i've gone to 
uh, some of the conferences where we might have bumped into each other. But uh, but congrats on a Jibo publication. Um, but I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, this this is you look at what, all the support that minimum wages gets at the voting booth, um, and this this mm -hmm. does somewhat. I mean, this kind of explains it. Yeah. The um, there there was some discussion in there, like if um, if they say you know the average respondents almost twenty percent less points less likely to choose minimum wage system when told my, minorities and females mm -hmm. are disproportionately affected. Um, that is part of my qualms with the minimum wage. Um, more, I, I didn't actually know anything. I'm, I don't know if there's research showing uh, women may be more affected than men by it. Um, but um, I mean, it was there are quotes. You know, there's some some of the why it was passed in the first place. Several different places that have passed it passed it for blatantly racist reasons. So, um, I, so I do know the data a little bit on this. So women are overrepresented overrepresented in minimum wage uh, positions and uh, African-Americans are over overrepresented in minimum wage jobs. I don't know about Hispanic workers. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to go on a limb and say, I don't think Asian workers are overrepresented. I would imagine they're underrepresented given their um, kind of their overall median wages. But I do know that women and African-Americans are yeah. overrepresented. Um, that, you know, I think what was, I don't want to say it was too surprising. There's, there's two things that stood out that I thought was really interesting. I really liked kind of their framing of, you know, there's so there's certain percentages that will always vote for it. And there's certain percentages that will always vote against it. Um, which made sense. Like I understood yep. that part. Um, but what I thought was interesting was the level of unemployment that people would tolerate. I was just surprised. I was really surprised. Um, so I pulled up the paper while you were doing that um, so I could find it. It was something like 4.5% extra or 5%. Yeah, 4.7% was the oh, number. That's a good memory then. I just I haven't even flipped yet. Uh, um, well, I think it's right in the abstract, actually. Oh, right. 4.7. Um, there it is, yep. 4.7%. Th so that's stunning. That's that's a stunningly high number. So, a b but it's a four point seven percent increase, right? Like, not even they're not willing to tolerate higher minimum wages for four point seven percent unemployment. They're willing to tolerate higher minimum wages for four for an increase of four point seven percentage points. I, is, I think they mean only among the affected group, right? Right, but right, but you're. I mean, that is a huge still, percentage, right? Because especially massive. when we when we expect unemployment's to be around three to four percent. Yeah. You're essentially saying it's okay to nearly double the unemployment of those groups. Um, I, I that's I, that was super surprising to me, but I I thought it I loved this study. Um, so they basically did a lot of really cool survey results of like presenting different options to people, um, asking them about like morality questions. So the part that you said earlier about like you know would you change your mind if it um, if it affected different groups of people. I thought it was super fascinating. I got like really into the weeds of this and I would love to see a follow-up. They included it as a footnote um, and it, like it's in their appendix. So this is a good uh, applied micro paper. So it's got a very long appendix. Of the whole thing's like checks. 75 pages, right? Or so it's the whole PDF. Uh, I love, I love applied micro. Um, like even in the beginning when they were, when like most of their respondents were from California and Oregon at first, I was like, Oh, that's why. And then like, of course, they've checked all those things and like they've done a really good job on the paper. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Right. And I think it I think that goes back to the normative standpoint. Um, so, you know, how much are you willing to harm some in order to help others? 
Matt, you tend to lean more on the the less harm, the better. No harm if possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I do not want the government. I, I probably don't want the government intervening. Yeah, I see the right. harming as excessive on the on on that. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think we talked about this a little bit before, even when we talked about act, our, our last episode. Yeah. Uh, about recessions, right? Like whether we were in a recession or not. Sure. I said no because employment's still great. You said yes because wages have come down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I would say like that would be my only sticking point to fight with you a little bit is that hypothetically, if we removed the minimum wage, some people are getting paid higher. We would see some reductions in wages. Oh, sure, sure, sure. For yeah, some people, some... right? Like the, not the people who... Or if it's non-binding, like those people don't have it. Well, any any policy change is going to harm right. some and help others, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no way around it. The restriction on this, what I what I do find interesting on this, the 4.7 jumped out, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that can't be, that can't actually be, you know, if they really thought and this really happened, mm-hmm. that that couldn't be it. That was my first reaction. But you know, thinking about it a bit more, the unemployment rates for teenagers are dramatically higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and you've they seen are for, the charts. They're, they're for women and minorities. Yeah. Like and, 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 and if you look yeah. at um, the unemployment rate, especially like among black teenagers, it's been way, way, way higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, you know, minimum wage probably has impacted. It, it has caused these higher unemployment rates already and people still support them. So, I mean, at first I thought 4.7 people, re- no, that can't be right. There's mm-hmm. some, you know, and you, People can design surveys poorly, right? I mean, you can design a survey poorly and get a bad result. But I actually look at the support for the minimum wage and the mm-hmm. differences in unemployment rates that we see. If you just look at, there's, there's, there's no reason the teenage unemployment rate should really be so dramatically higher than everything else. In many ways, there should be fewer frictions among teenagers than among, say, people who are later career because... There should be a lot of options for low wage jobs for people just entering the workforce. And yet it's always dramatically higher. Um, I don't know that that's true. I don't, I don't know about that. Right. Like, so your kids have cars. Um, no, no. no. I mean, they, no, okay. they get a license, but no, they don't. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, there are maybe not as many places. I, I, so I think one of the things that's really when I think about it is there's not a lot of places you can work. Like I remember applying for these jobs and like just the, this, I, I think somebody posted this not long ago on Twitter, like the interview process to like work at a Taco Bell. Um, if it was just like, you know, how did you hear about this job? And they're like, everyone knows what Taco Bell is. Like, <laughs> like it's one of those, like they're, they're treated like a kind of a normal, I don't want to say a normal job, but like a job that you would not expect to pay minimum wage. Um, I'm not sure. Like, I think we look at it and say like, well, look, you can work at Taco Bell and McDonald's and Burger King and KFC. Like you can work at all these fast food places. Um, but I don't necessarily know that, right. We assume kind of easy entry into those jobs. And I think right now, like pandemic wise, we're seeing like, they're just trying to grab as many people as they can. Um, but I can see people being picky, especially teenagers about where they work. Um, Cause I see that on, at least on campus where I'll see students who will say like, oh, I'd really like a part-time job. And I'm like, oh, great. Aban Pan is hiring. You should go work there. And they go, oh, no, I don't want to work there. I want to work at the library. And I was like, 
but the library is not hiring. You want a job, Aubon Pond is hiring. And they go, eh, I'm going to wait and see if I can get a job at the gym. Um, right? well, like they, they want certain jobs. I, I think I mean, some of that could be why we see such high unemployment rates. But that's going to happen with every, every group. And in theory, there should be mm-hmm. more options available for... But I think for, for me and you, we, right, we, like, we have to pay bills. Like, we've got some responsibilities. Like, we will work anywhere if, it gets, if we get desperate enough. Um, I think, especially college students, high school students, I think they can be a little pickier. Oh. You're not, right, not yeah. going to kick them out. You're not charging rent. Um, right? like if, they're, if they're like, oh, I don't want to work there. I'm going to wait. I'm going to apply to this other job. You'd be like, okay, that's fine. Go ahead. Yeah, they could be slower on the search process. It's the, I think it's on the search looking. side, right? Like, yeah, I yeah, think it's, yeah. it's purely on the search side where they're trying to find the right job or where they're working mm-hmm. with their friends, um, that they're not just taking the first job available. Uh, they can afford to be a little pickier because they have time. So, but um, but I, I, I think the, the difference is, yeah, I mean, if, if, you don't, if you don't buy into the differences being tied at least significantly to the minimum wage, and I think mm-hmm. given we, sh- we should bring up what the, I guess, what's happening now, right? The unemployment rate among teenagers should be quite a bit lower now than it has been historically, even though because the minimum wage is such a le- lower binding constraint, at least in states like Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Where, um, and, and that would help, I guess, prove my hypothesis if it's much right. lower now, because the unemployment rate was close to 4% five, six years ago, um, or four years ago. Unemployment rate is not that much lower now. But let's see um, if I can find it. Let's, uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> so, see, I'll get my the, Google searching skills. The um, teenage, I, teenage I unemployment. Ex- yeah, but I, I, I think, ex- I, I, th- I think the public has supported. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely, it's, I would imagine it's lower. No, July. So this is July, 2022. That's the first one I just pulled up. Yep. Uh, it was still at eight and a half percent, but down oh, from, that's down, nothing. From 10, down from 10% in July, 2021. And down uh, from probably 16% in what July, I bet, I bet it was in 15, it, 16%, five, six years ago. It doesn't, uh, well, it says July, 2019, 9.1, um, Teenage unemployment remains near a 68-year low as tight labor markets uh, draws in a younger crowd. That's, this is a Fortune article that came out in yeah. May. We could uh, we could look that up and link to it. So to oh, the extent that um, the the one thing where I think the um, unemployment rate increases are a bit misleading among the minimum wage is so if you have a market without a minimum wage. Or let's say Pennsylvania, where it's seven twenty-five, which is in many places, it's like there's no minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you put in one for sixteen dollars an hour, where um, most of the the targets, the Paneras, the Starbucks are paying maybe twelve to fifteen. Uh, the the fast food restaurants, you know, they're still probably paying over ten here. Mm-hmm. You would have uh, some subset of workers who are making, say, eleven or twelve dollars an hour. You know that are, if they've accepted that job, naturally that's that's the job that they think is the best job they're going to have, right? That you know, other if there was a dramatically better option out there, we would trust people would go find the dramatically better option. So if you put in a minimum wage, some of those individuals would keep the job and just make more. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's not even those individuals, but the people two years later down the road, mm-hmm. the, the next 16-year-old. But there would be a different set of workers who 
I'm not going to work for $12 an hour, but if you, but if you pay 16 or 17, they'll jump into the labor market. Yeah. And so the total number of people working in those particular jobs might not drop, mm -hmm. but it might go to individuals who, it might go to the individuals who don't get as much as economists would say producer surplus. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know that the unemployment rate or the employment and unemployment tells quite the full story. Yeah, especially you know, the, the total employed. But the I brought this up with a with a reporter the other day. Um, you can be employed for fewer hours at more per hour, and you might make the exact same, right? Like maybe the, you're going to get paid the exact same dollar amount, but you're going to have fewer hours. Like those fewer hours are valuable. Um, and so that's where I always struggle a little bit on the employment side of things. Whenever we see reductions in employment, reductions in hours worked, um, I'd really like to see earnings studies. Um, it, it seems like most most things are on the employment side uh, so, rather but, than yeah. on the earnings side. So it's on the employment side, but it's it's not as much by specific worker, correct? Yeah. It's, it's by... So Groups. It, it's... The 16-year-old who got the $12 an hour job in some cases is, is, is completely losing the job. And a person whose reservation wage would be $15 an hour is going to take one for $17 an mm -hmm. hour. And the person whose reservation wage was $15 probably, on average, is going to bring a little bit more to the job, bring, bring more in, in skills to the job than the person whose reservation wage is $10. Um, and, and so you have, you might have the same total amount expended for labor hours or mm -hmm. maybe even more expended to workers, but it doesn't, the data is hiding the fact that some yeah. people have lost their jobs and yeah. lost, lost opportunities in there. So. so that, that pulls up the next article, but I mean, we've been talking for a while that we knew this was going to be an important topic. Um, so let's, I, I'll summarize the next one, but I think I can summarize it in a, in a fast way. Cause I think this brings up exactly what you said. Um, right. It's not just Matt and I talking about this back and forth. Um, if you n listened carefully through our conversation for the past 45 minutes, um, you'll know everybody has, and everybody has, yes, no, if you're still notes. here, if you're still here, you've listened closely. Um, neither Matt nor I really talked about like, the research says this, the research says that, and that's on purpose um, because what's kind of interesting is that there are economists who have kind of generalized the research, um, but they tend to ignore the other side that finds completely different outcomes. Um, and it's not a situation where like economists don't know what's going on. Um, I think it really, and this is the way I always describe it to people, um, minimum, discussing the minimum wage and the research on minimum wage is very particular to what you're studying, where you're studying, how much it's changing, what group is impacted, um, when it's being impacted, like minimum wage changes that happen during the Great Recession are going to be very different than minimum wage impacts that happen in the 90s during a boom. Um, and one of the problems with that is it creates a series of research that or a line of research that finds all sorts of different outcomes. Uh, so there was a paper published, um, it was accepted last year. I think it's officially published. I think I printed the, the published version um, by David Newmark and Peter Shirley uh, called Myth or Measurement, What Does the New Minimum Wage Research Say About Minimum Wages and Job Losses in the United States? So it is not a meta-analysis, but it's kind of a summary of 
not actually what, you know, what should you believe about the minimum wage, but I thought it was really interesting the way they framed it. It's a summary of how people summarize the minute. It's a summary yeah. of a summary. Summary um, of how scholars have summarized how scholars it. summarize it. Um, yep. And so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, and essentially that they kind of break down how other economists talk about minimum wages when kind of the median result uh, is that there's job losses. Um, and then you get into kind of a debate of like, I think it was like 0.1, negative 0.1 percent. I mean, there's negative 0.1, I think it was the elasticity. So like a, that would mean like a 10% increase in the minimum wage would drop employment by a percent. Um, and so even though like kind of the median result of all these studies is negative, you have people on both sides who kind of say all of the results are it's negative or it's overwhelmingly negative. Yeah. Or on the positive side, it's the results are that there's no impact whatsoever. Um, so it was interesting just kind of as a study of economists, how we talk about it. And I think you and I just did a really good job not falling into that trap, but it, maybe it helps that we read the paper. Could be. Yeah. The, uh, we'll, we'll link to the paper for those, um, the key four key conclusions they write, right? There's a clear preponderance of negative estimates in the literature, which means minimum wage increase would cause job loss. Um, the evidence is stronger for teens and young adults, as well as the less educated, which we kind of have alluded to that during our mm -hmm. conversation, uh, more likely to be um, losing a job. The evidence from studies of directly affected workers points to even, even more strongly to negative employment effects. And for the evidence from studies of low-wage industries, looking at the industry as a whole, is less one-sided. So the three, you know, clear preponderance, evidence is stronger, teens and young adults, directly affected workers, and less strong, weaker, right, from low-wage industries as a whole. Mm -hmm. And kind of point people to those uh, to those articles. Although after listening to this, I think everybody's in good shape. No, <laughs> if you've made it this far, uh, you can also handle this uh, article as well. Yeah. So I think uh, that was, I think that was a good one. That kind of sums up that last portion is like, yeah. there, you know, it's, and, but I think that that, that matches Connor and Jose's paper, even if there's negative items, right? Like the positive, the positive analysis, I guess maybe yeah. this will tie it all together. The positive analysis says, Hey, it's probably going to decrease employment. Like that's the, you know, most of the evidence says it's going to decrease employment. But what I think was really cool about Connor's paper is that the article is basically saying, okay, people, people are willing to put up with it. Yep, like that's, yep. they're fine with that. Um, and, the, and it explains why there's so, such strong survey results for it is, and I think that's where economics is super interesting is like, okay, we have all this data that says, look, people are going to lose their job. But the, I think what's really cool about, an applied statistician could come up with that same result. Um, and I think where economics is really interesting is not on the positive side. I know like that tends to be where, uh, especially recently, people focus on like the empiric side of things. But I think where economics is super interesting is on the normative side. Okay, people lose their jobs, like, but people still support it. So how do we respond to that? How do yeah. we implement the, you know, how do we get people to implement these policies and then help the people who lose their jobs in the process? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, that's where economics is really interesting is that we don't just follow, we don't blindly follow evidence. We don't say like, we're not, you know, I'm not a good philosopher, um, right? Like, oh, people have been harmed, so we don't do it. Yeah. Whoever that person was, um, we don't do that, right? We, we actually have debates about um, 
okay, so it happens. What do we do now? So I, I like that part about economics. No. So um, we always try to do a pop culture reference in each one. Uh, I know for a song that I'll recommend you check out, and it's on broadwayeconomics.com, is from the musical Ragtime, which is, man, makes me feel old to know that that came out about tw almost 25 years ago, uh, called It's Henry Ford. Ragtime is mm -hmm. a really great musical if anybody gets it. I don't know if you've seen it, Jadrian, but mm -hmm. if you get the chance, uh, should check it out. It's turn of the century. It follows um several different families and how they um their lives intertwine but uh it's a song where henry ford singing about you know starting up the first production line and we talk about uh you know those off auto jobs actually often aren't that low wage of jobs mm -hmm. but in terms of jobs where thinking about where jobs where everybody's doing the same thing and talking about you know in the in the song they actually say even people who ain't too clever can learn to tighten a nut forever mm -hmm. uh in terms of you know as it needed people for that uh, that'd be a very replaceable individual and you know famous five dollar a day in order to try to get people there um mm -hmm. in which was thought of as a huge wage at the time but uh really interesting song to check out and you can check that out on broadwayeconomics.com so I'll give you a pop culture one that's minimum wage related, because uh, I haven't been working on any pop culture stuff lately. Um, but there, my, the scene that I use to teach minimum wage in my principal's class is an, uh, it's a very short, like 15 second clip uh, from Saturday Night Live. Uh, Chris Rock is doing weekend update uh, and he's talking about minimum wage. And I absolutely love the way that he kind of phrases it in there. Um, he basically just says, like, there's a new minimum wage coming out, uh, and you know what a minimum wage means. Uh, it means that if your boss could pay you less, they would, but they can't. Um, and that, like, that's the whole scene. It's like 15 seconds long. Um, but I love, like, I love using that because it helps kind of see this idea of binding, non-binding. Like, if I could pay you less, like, that's what we talk about when we talk about market equilibriums, but I can't. I have to pay you less. Um, so it's like a really good, like, 15-second scene. Um, Saturday Night Live always has like some really great, like really kind of key uh, concepts that I like to teach. I think I remember seeing that one live when it came out way back, whenever it was. <laughs> it is old, right? It's, it's Chris Rock. It's an old so one. I, but I did not see it. That's, um, um, yeah, the, you mentioned last time you were born in 86, I think. I was born mm -hmm. in 76, so 10 years okay. difference. So Chris Rock and Chris Farley, like I was in high school with Rock and Farley and Adam Sandler and mm -hmm. out of... Um, some i think everybody would probably say that those are you know when you're a teenager yeah. Yeah, high school years was the golden age of saturday night live but uh, to be fair that's when i watched it too though right like i was okay. like that's they were still like those were the like those were the classics uh, that that were on then yeah yeah no so i like that matt this is a good conversation i was i'm really yeah. happy with this one thanks son uh, this was and fun I'm and i'm empty so i'm, I'm empty this too so that's not that's a three to leave not a 3.5. I'm definitely going to rate it higher. Awesome. Well, thank you to everybody for tuning in. And Jadrian, any closing words of wisdom? I, I have none, but don't be surprised when Matt is, when you're hearing about Matt's dry January in February, just know that we record these a little earlier. This one will still be out in January. This but, one will uh, be in, it's still January when you're listening to this, but, yes, but the next, next future one. episodes. Correct. Uh, correct. Please share this with your friends. Yep. Yeah. Please, uh, if you like this, please uh, like, subscribe, share it with friends. And other than that, we'll look forward to seeing you again in the next episode. Cheers, Matt. Cheers.